Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Well, you could think of this collection like a reference library, and I guess I'm a bit like a librarian. So we need to ensure that we can find what we need and the transactions, so borrowing. People borrow the specimens to work on them, and I manage all of that. So they'll check them out and make sure that they get them back by the due date. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or else fines will be imposed. <laughs> quite kind, really. <laughs> Kia ora, no mai haerumai ki tō tātou au hurihuri. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World, ko Claire and Cannon tēnei. This kind librarian is Adrian Stanton, actually the collection manager of the New Zealand Fungarium, a dried collection of fungi that's housed in Manaki Whenua in Auckland. So you're here as we come in. There's a sticky mat under our feet, which um, just catches some of the insects and debris on your shoes. When we have visitors here, school groups, they love bouncing up and down on the sticky mat. And it's quite cold and dry in here. That's right, yeah. It's um, about 18 degrees and about 40% relative humidity. Yeah, so that's the climate-controlled conditions. Walking into this room, there's definitely a kind of library feel going on. It's quiet and calm and organised. Directly in front is a glass display cabinet with an array of weird and wonderful fungi, an old-school microscope and little placards of information about the specimens and the people who collected them. But the large room is dominated by row upon row of metal shelves with what looks like large shoe boxes stacked upon them. And inside the boxes, there's many, many packets. So you'll see lots of what look like envelopes, and inside they're wrapped in tissue. The idea is to protect the specimen. So the tissue is a special type of tissue that's best for preserving the genetic qualities of the specimen. And we don't know in the future what they may be used for. There may be uses that people dream up that we wouldn't think of at this point. And so we're just trying to preserve them as best we can. Stacks of shelves, numerous boxes on every shelf, and many boxes filled with these envelopes. The number of specimens adds up quickly. So we estimate they're probably about 100,000 or so, and, you know, give or take a few thousand here or there. That's Dr. Mahajabin Padamsi, or Maj, the curator of the collection. And they're, they're multiples of, of the same species. And the reason for that is that we want to make sure that we keep a record of that particular species as throughout its range. We need to be able to know like, you know where you could find it, how often it's been found, and that, that serves as a record of you know, any sort of changes that might occur. So what's the focus of this particular collection then? 
So the initial focus of the collection, it's um, you notice that there's an acronym PDD, and that stands for the Plant Diseases Division, and it was the Plant Diseases Division of DSIR, um, the previous organization to the Crown Research Institutes. So the primary focus was looking at plant diseases because we're, you know, an island country and we need to be able to trade across oceans and we're worried about diseases of plants, um, help make decisions when things come in from overseas so that you're not allowing pests and diseases to come across the border. But it's also on native biodiversity, knowing what's present in New Zealand so we can protect what's here. They're actually vital to our existence, but 90% of plants depend upon fungi in their roots to be able to survive. And we just don't have a very good understanding of fungi that are present around New Zealand. As curator, it's Maja's job to decide what gets added to the collection and what doesn't, which she says is really tough. Because you just don't know like what might be important in the future. So you know, you're making a decision based on what information you have right now, but something that you don't think might be important to collect. Like, for instance, if you go out into the bush, you see these little orange honeycomb mushrooms that that occur on, on fallen wood. Well, for a long time, we thought that they were invasive, and actually some of them are. But we just recently found out that we have a native species that looks exactly like all these other things. So, you know, it's just um, adapting to new information that comes. And the other thing with with mushrooms is that you can't really predict when they're going to appear. So it, it a lot of it depends upon the conditions that are there. So the body of the fungus, which is the mycelium, which is underground, might still be there, but it might not form the the mushroom except for maybe once every five years. And so if you see it, even if you have a collection, you know, do you collect it, do you not collect it? Um, so yes, it is a hard decision. The collection grows each year by about 2,000 new specimens. Students or overseas researchers or other collectors deposit with them. But the main sources of these new specimens are the annual fungal forays, in association with the Fungal Network of New Zealand. We alternate between South Island and North Island locations each year and they're um, usually a week long and we go to uh, a particular area that's decided by consensus and we'll go out each morning and collect and then bring it back to a communal area. We set up in a hall or school and people will look at each other's collections and discuss and some identifications will be made where possible and we start the database going and recording who, where, when, what and you will dry the specimens down and bring them back here. So it's like a treasure hunt (laughs) for fungal enthusiasts. Absolutely. (laughs) And the criteria is go find whatever you can find. Yeah, whatever's of interest. Yeah, but different people have different um, interests. And I guess this ties into what you were saying, Marge, because maybe you're lucky and that particular mushroom has sprouted during that time, in that week, in, on that day. Exactly, exactly. Or maybe you're not. Yeah, exactly. And you can you can never really predict like what you're going to find. I mean, there's some common ones that you will see, but most of the things, you just have no idea what you're going to find in a particular area. And, you know, I, when I first started to go on these forays, we would have a, a list 
printed out of what had been collected in that region before to say, okay, you know, well, this will help us make decisions about what what we're going to keep and what we're not going to keep. And very soon you just have to throw it away because it, there's no way to predict. And something that you do have a collection of, actually you get a whole bunch of new specimens and, you know, it's like, well, we may as well keep it because then it's a record of like that it has occurred again and it has reappeared like after, you know, five years, 10 years, whenever, however long it, it takes to, to come up again. So, yeah, it's, it's lots of fun, but it's, it's definitely challenging because, we, you know, we, do, we can't take everything, but we try and keep the, the best for the collection. It's overwhelming the number of fungi in this room. While there are a few collections from overseas, including a large one from the Pacific Islands, the majority are from Aotearoa. But based on known ratios of plants and fungi in other countries, it's estimated that only a third of the fungal biodiversity in Aotearoa has been recorded to date. There are probably another 15 to 20,000 unknown species out there, Maj reckons. Some of the most interesting ones are on display in the glass cabinet, the first thing you see when you walk in. So this is called a vegetable caterpillar. It's Ophiocordyceps robotii, and that's an endemic New Zealand fungus. And what you see is that there is an actual caterpillar. And what happens is that it eats the spore of this particular fungus and it changes its behavior. So instead of you know doing what caterpillars do, which is eat and eat and eat, it goes and buries itself in the ground with its head pointing up. And the fungus grows from the top of the head and so most of it is below ground and only about maybe 15 centimeters or so pokes up above ground. It kind of looks like a stick. This is something that Maori would use. They would burn it and mix it with bird fat and then use it for that tamoko because it made a very, very dark black pigment. That's mad. <laughs> they look like... They kind of look like weird caterpillar lollipops. <laughs> They're, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, if you can imagine like a, you know, a, a caterpillar that's, that's about, oh, what is it, five or seven centimeters long and just shriveled up and then this, this little stick growing from the, from the top of it, they are really, really hard to find because again, it's, it's buried underground. So you kind of have to trace the top of it back down to the caterpillar and excavate the entire thing. So very often we have them in our collection and they've just been broken off because they haven't been able to trace it all the way down. But it's just, I mean, it's incredible to me to think that, you know, that this caterpillar can eat a spore of a fungus and it completely changes its behavior and then out of this caterpillar grows this other organism which is just so fascinating. From the top of the cabinet Maj carefully lifts down a large fungus lumpy and creamy coloured with lots of holes on the bottom kind of like a sponge. This one here that Maj is holding is um, a bracket fungus it's uh, a latoporus and it was uh, used possibly for collecting embers and keeping a fire going. So you could use it for fire lighting later. You carry it with you and it would smoulder. So um, Māori could use that and they used it in the um, trenches in the World War as well. It's so big. Um, so they, you would have like a little small little piece of it and then, um, and then between two pieces you could carry a, an ember of a fire and it wouldn't burn hot. It, and so you could keep it in a pocket or like in a, you know, in a 
bag or a basket or whatever, and it wouldn't catch fire until you o open the pieces and then you know use it to start a fire. Um, they grow in a couple of months or so, which is pretty incredible to see that size. And they grow up on the tree and they they get sodden with water, and they get so sodden with water that they fall down. And that's when they collect it and, you know, for the fire. And is this one completely dried out? This is. So it's, it's I won't pass it to you since you're holding mice, but if you try and if you hold it, it's actually like fairly light. Um, and that's another thing that would facilitate it being moved from place to place is it's just, it was so light that you could do that um, as opposed to... She's reaching for another massive fungus. This one is almost the size of her torso. Semicircle shaped, it's light brown with gnarly rings of ridges fanning out from the center, where it was once attached to a tree. Wow, that's cool. This is another bracket fungus, but this probably took, you know, many, many years to grow, and this is much heavier. It's like a big, giant piece of wood. Oh my gosh, they're so cool. Can I? <laughs> yeah, can yeah, I? of course. Yeah, that's me putting down the mic so that I can hold them. Amongst these tens of thousands of fungi, I ask Adrienne a question that she really doesn't want to answer. What's your favourite? It's really hard because there's so many contenders, but I do like the bird's nest fungi. Their fruiting structure is like a little nest. It looks like it's full of eggs, which is the packets of spores. And when a, it rains, a raindrop will drop onto it, and that will cause those eggs... <laughs> for want of a better name, to um, explode and the spores are shot out. So in this box here, there's some, um, some of the earliest collections of the bird's nest fungi. And I'm just opening the lid and let's see what do we have here. So this one was collected in 1963 in the Waitakere's and it's still in an old packet but you can see even though it's that old, you can see all the, the, the features. You can see the little baby eggs and the spore packets. Yeah, it does look like a tiny, tiny bird's nest. So those are pretty cool. And we have several boxes of just this one. Yeah, this species. So that, they'll form on some fallen wood. So you might notice them as you, as you walk through the bush. I could have spent days in this room just looking at different fungi. For Adrian and Maj, taking care of this collection is a never-ending job. They have whole shelves of specimens that have yet to be reviewed and catalogued and added to the collection. Plus, as we learn more about different fungi, sometimes the name of species they have changes and they need to be recategorized. And there is that other estimated two-thirds of fungi as yet unknown. I have to say, like having discovered fungi when I was probably in my early 20s is you never get tired of them and once you start to see them you see them everywhere and they're just so fascinating and a lifetime is not enough to study them several lifetimes many many lifetimes <laughs> a crucial part of this collection is the type specimens that they hold an individual fungus chosen to serve as the basis for naming and describing a new species so that specimen is tied to the name it's like a reference point against which others will be compared, which makes type specimens really important. They're protected objects under the Protected Object Act, so we have to apply to the Ministry of Culture and Heritage if we're 
sending them overseas for study or that kind of thing. But we'd want to do that anyway, to be very careful because they're unique. Now, this is a dried collection, no longer alive. But around the corner, through a series of doors and corridors, on the same floor of the Mnaki Fenua building, is another collection. And this one is alive. So this room is the ICMP, or the International Collection of Microorganisms from Plants. This is Dr Bevan Weir, the curator of the ICMP Culture Collection. So as we're looking into this room, we can see a bunch of stainless steel glinty tanks. Um, very beautiful aesthetic, if you like that kind of stainless steel kitchen look. And there's a few different tanks in here. So there's some that are about one and a half metres high by a metre round, and some slightly smaller tanks. And these tanks are full of liquid nitrogen. And this is how we store the cultures. So in this collection, we have about 24,000 living cultures of bacteria, fungi, and chromists. Chromists are a different form of life to bacteria and fungi, actually most closely related to brown algae that live in the ocean. They can look a bit like fungi, but are genetically distinct. They often live in the soil, where they can attack plant roots. The most infamous one in Aotearoa is probably Phytophthora agathodicida, responsible for kauri dieback disease. Translated from the Latin, it means plant destroyer, kauri killer. And it's in this collection. The collection started around 1952 as the personal bacterial collection of microbiologist Dr. Douglas W. Dye. Under his curation, it grew from there and became the culture collection for the Plant Disease Division of the New Zealand Department of Scientific and Industrial Research, DSIR. Fungal culture started to be added in 1961. Now, initially, they had to keep serially growing the cultures, then vacuum drying was used until liquid nitrogen took over in the 1990s. And a key focus of the collection today continues to be plant pathogens. The bacteria, fungi and chromis that attack plants and, and cause disease. And because of all those decades of effort from uh, my predecessors, and I've been adding to it as now, inside this room we now have every single bacterial plant pathogen that's ever been described in the world inside this room. In the world? Every single one, yeah. I, I put in an order a few weeks ago and got the last sort of 20 or 30. So this is not just plant pathogens that are in New Zealand, this is worldwide collection? Absolutely. So that's the international part of the name. Uh, it's got uh, everything from all over the world. And this is both through us here working and actively seeking things out, and researchers from all around the world deposit in the collection as well, uh, because they know we're one of the, the best in the world at doing this sort of thing, keeping them alive and safe for, for decades to come, and have really good sort of database infrastructure uh, behind it. And one of the reasons is that the rules for naming bacteria mean that you have to deposit the, the type strain, as it's called, or the, the one that kind of defines the species into two international collections. And very often for plant pathogens, this is the one that people choose. That's right. I'm looking through a glass window into a room in which there are thousands of plant killers submerged in liquid nitrogen inside large stainless steel tanks. So if the New Zealand Fungarium is like a library, then you can think of the ICMP as more like a vault. There's a lot of layers of security uh, in place for a start. They are inside a tube, inside a stainless steel tank, and you'd need to know the database to know what it is. 
the room itself has got a you know keypad lock on that room is inside another room which has a swipe key and a keypad lock on and inside a building that you have to go through security so yeah it's um yeah a, a lot of security around it and for good reason but how does this actually work what is a culture and how can they still be alive when sitting in super cold liquid nitrogen if we take uh, the bacteria that you might have in your yogurt for example uh, so your yogurt is a mixture of bacteria and milk proteins and all sorts of things but if you just take out a pure single cell of that bacterium purify it and grow it up on an agar plate that pure single organism is what we'd call a culture so you grow those up on the agar plates and then freeze them and they're sitting here kind of frozen in time like they're they're still alive but frozen at minus 196 degrees That's right. The secret is that we use a cryoprotectant in our case glycerol. And so cells have mostly water in them and that water like everything else if you think about when you're putting ice cubes in the freezer um they grow, they expand when they freeze and that same thing happens to your cells. So those uh any cells in in a freezer the, the ice in them will grow, expand and pop the cell open. And that's why things can't come back to life. unless you use a cryoprotectant. And so we mix our bacterial or fungal cells with this cryoprotectant that penetrates into the cells and it changes the property of the water so that rather than expanding when it freezes, it stays pretty much the same and so those cells are protected. It also freezes in uh like a glass. So a very single crystal whereas you can imagine, you know, uh ice has a lot of little shards in it. and so these these two properties allow us to freeze the fungal and bacterial cells um without causing them any damage so when we can take them out again decades later and put them in a warm environment they'll come back to life so while the dried fungi collection requires careful specimen storage in tissue and cardboard boxes in a low humidity cool room the ICMP culture collection has its own specific set of needs and looking after these is Megan Peterson. So as a collection manager I oversee the daily operations of the collection, uh the inwards and outwards of cultures into the collection and out of the collection, the staff that operate the facility and work quite closely with Beaver Weir as the curator. So we both oversee it in a in a broader sense. So you're making sure that everything that needs to stay frozen stays frozen and if people request a different culture you're then figuring out which of these vats it's in pulling it out and growing it up yeah correct so uh, basically an order will come in or a request for a culture will come in we check that it is allowed to go out to the particular researcher for the activity that they want it for and then we would determine how what where we're going to be getting that from uh the media that's going to be used to culture it on so we need to be able to put it on specialty media to grow it again and then the technical staff will be then uh distributing it out to the researchers but as we we're chatting someone shows up hang on i've got a 
I just need to sort this one out. Is that okay? This is so Megan's doing her job, and this is why she's fantastic because she deals with. Uh, contractors and everyone coming in, in this case some guys fixing a sensor, um, she keeps the thing running. As well as being so cold that it can burn, when the liquid nitrogen turns into gas it can displace air in a room, which means that this vault also has many alarms on it. But mostly to ensure the safety of the people working in there. So they've come in to check our airflow. We had an issue yesterday with alarms going off and so because this is a highly sensitive area as far as safety goes we need to make sure that the airflow is working in this collections room and so he came in just to check and as collection manager that's your job those alarms go off you're like right i need to sort this out that's exactly right so my ears are in tune with any any alarms that go off it doesn't take too long for me to jump up off my chair and go hunt out the problem uh, we all are very aware of any change in noise around here because we have some really precious equipment. So any alarms, any change in sound, we jump onto it. So needs a lot of security and technically difficult to maintain. Why have this collection? What are the benefits? Like the New Zealand Fungarium, the two main focuses are bioprotection and biodiversity. As with fungi, there are also tens of thousands of bacteria that have never been described and named. They're currently going through the collection and getting DNA sequences of everything. And as a result, they're learning some new things. On the bioprotection side, the collection has proved useful on a number of occasions. Well, it's been described by one grower we've spoken to as the foot and mouth of the kiwi fruit industry. The vine disease, PSA, has been confirmed in a Bay of Plenty kiwi fruit orchard. Kiwi fruit industries expecting a loss of more than $100 million this year because of the vine killing disease, PSA. Before September last year, PSAV had only been found in Tupuki, but spring revealed the disease had spread further. PSAV appears to be on the march with a discovery in Northland hundreds of kilometres from ground zero at Tupuki. The spread of the disease to Kerikeri, if it's confirmed, dramatically extends the threat to the entire billion-dollar-plus industry. So in November 2010, there were some reports of uh, kiwifruit growers having uh, kind of spots on their leaves. And this was not entirely unusual, but MPI did some initial diagnostic work and it seemed like it might be this thing that hadn't been recorded in New Zealand before, a PSA, or Pseudomonas syringi papava actinidae, to give it its kind of formal Latin name. Uh, for understand seems easier. <laughs> that's, yeah, understandable, most people call it PSA. And so in 1980, a guy from Japan, Takikawa, uh, described this bacterial pathogen of kiwi fruit and sent it to us for safekeeping as part of, you know, the normal scientific process of describing a species. And it's sat there for all those decades until that exact time when we needed it. So we were able to pull that culture out of the collection, uh, give it to MPI and be able to use in their diagnostic tests. And because we're literally upstairs from them, you know, this was a process of a few hours. If they had to kind of, you know, try to get this from an overseas collection, it would have been weeks later, which, you know, would have delayed the entire biosecurity response. But at that time, we didn't actually know if it was um, PSA or if it was, was it even a problem? Because growers had reported seeing leaf spots on their kiwifruit leaves uh, many years past. So was this just a normal leaf spotting organism or something worse? So that's the great thing about the history of the collection. So we were able to look back over the past 40 years 
of collections from kiwifruit. So researchers uh, collecting things as just part of their normal activities, uh, publish papers and store those cultures in the collection. And we're able to look back past all of those and get them all out, uh, DNA sequence them, because taxonomy sort of changes over time. So maybe, maybe it was there in, in the past and just wasn't recognized. But we were able to prove that throughout the history of the collection, this PSA had never been recorded before. So it truly was a new incursion into New Zealand. Unfortunately, yes, it was a new incursion and a costly one. An estimated $900 million in losses to the kiwifruit industry. PSA is still skulking around today. The difficult truth is it's hard to wind back the clock once plant pathogens start to run amok. Farmers are still spending money to fight it every year, but there are also more resistant vines being grown now, which has helped. There is a caveat to the biosecurity part, though. Because of how some plant pathogens grow, there are some things that just cannot be cultured and added to the collection. Yeah, there's a whole group of organisms that can't grow on agar plates and so we can't store them. And one of them is the, is the rust fungi, so uh, like myrtle rust. It simply has to grow on a plant and so it cannot be grown in culture. And there's a whole group of bacteria, the phytoplasmas that cause, uh, for example, that um, cabbage tree sudden decline and other organisms that just, they just have this such a tight association with plants. In evolutionary time, they've just sort of co-evolved with plants so tightly that they've lost their genes and their ability to live separate from the plant. So unfortunately, these ones, yeah, we can't store them in the collection. But like the New Zealand fungarium, this collection is also growing. In the corridor outside of the ICMP room, there are empty stainless steel tanks. The leftovers, Megan says, after a recent upgrade, needed because they were running out of space. The three new tanks they have can hold 20,000 cultures per tank. They've filled one and a third, so still have plenty of space to go. As curator, it's Bevan's job to decide what goes in and what doesn't. Because it's so labour-intensive, I'm kind of very selective about what goes in. So, of course, type cultures go in because they're critically important. And then looking for gaps. So do we have a species that's not uh, represented in the collection? So, of course, we'll be accepting those in. Or maybe uh, uh, a bacteria from a new host that hasn't been recorded for. So sort of just filling in the gaps. And my thought is always, is someone going to use this in the future? For those scary plant pathogens, good to have at hand, but really, let's hope not. Thanks to Adrian Stanton, Dr. Mahajabin Padamsi, Dr. Bevan Weir and Megan Peterson, all from Naaki Fenua Landcare Research. This episode was produced by me, Claire Kincannon. Thanks to Justin Gregory for editing help and to Our Changing World assistant producer, Ellen Rikers. Sound engineering was by William Saunders, and Tim Watkin is the executive producer of podcasts and series at RNZ. You can find and follow Our Changing World on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Check out the show's website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld for some weird and wonderful funky pictures. And if you want to get in touch with us, we're on Facebook or Twitter at RNZ Science. There are lots of great new RNZ podcasts coming out all the time. Visit the Podcasts and Series tab on the RNZ website to explore. In the latest comedy podcast release, Tim Batt, comedian and podcast maker, joins Australian comedian and writer Carlo Ritchie to answer a question no one was asking. Did Titanic sink? 
Search for Did Titanic Sink on your favourite podcast platform or on the RNZ website. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai to wiki. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.